Now, uh, let's go to the Word of God together to Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. I'll give you the verse in just a moment, but Second Peter chapter 1. Now, spec savers have got some of the funniest and best ads on television. Uh, the old shepherd <laughs> who shears a sheepdog along with a sheep <laughs> was very funny, wasn't it? Uh, this one wasn't on long, but I remember seeing it. The lumberjack who was cutting down electricity poles instead of trees. And then, of course, the, the one that's been on the longest is, is the old couple who go to the fairground and think they're sitting in the park bench and they end up in the Big Dipper. And he said to his wife, what kind of cheese was in that sandwich? And so they were very funny ads, but they did make the point very, very clear. And that is that you need to go to the optician and you need to get your eyes tested. Those of a certain age, particularly. Uh, those, when you get into your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, Clifford, then your arm becomes too short <laughs> to, to get holding that page out. And uh, you've got to go to the optician and get seen with. Now, most people in that age bracket suffer with some kind of loss of vision, some kind of impaired or, or poor vision. And uh, maybe that's inability to see closer, inability to see at a distance. And myopia is what they call the inability to see at a distance. In other words, to be nearsighted or short-sighted. And uh, perhaps you can read, but when it comes to far away, then you really, really struggle. Anybody in that bracket tonight? A few. Anybody in the reading bracket? I'm in both brackets. I'll hold both hands up. And so it's very common, isn't it? But spiritual myopia is a disease that afflicts the eyes of the soul. It impairs our vision to see our future. We fail to see afar off. Eternity is too remote. Eternal is too vague. We just can't see afar off enough. And consequently, we live our lives solely for today, for the present, for right now. Most people live for right now. But the believer is not just to live in the now. We are to see afar off as well as see in the now. And didn't Jesus, though, say something about the future? Did not he say that sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof? Take no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take thought for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Yes, he did say that. He said that in Matthew 6 as part of the great Sermon on the Mount. But the Bible doesn't tell us that we cannot think and consider our future or that we should not make plans for a future or that we should not have any dreams about our future. Because if we're not allowed to do that, then why would the farmer sow seed for a future harvest? Why would a couple plan to have a baby for their future. And so it's obvious that we can plan and think ahead for a future. But what we're not to do, 
And what Jesus made abundantly clear is we're not to worry about our future. We're not to get overly anxious about our future. Yes, we think about it, we consider it, we plan for it, but we don't worry ourselves sick about it. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, we're positively encouraged to think about our future, even beyond time and right into eternity. Colossians chapter 3, 1 and 2. Don't turn to it. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind or your affections, the King James says, set your mind or your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And so while we have to deal with the here and now, we have to consider the there and the then. Why do we have to deal with today? We've got to make plans for tomorrow, but not to be anxious or worried or fretting about it. Now, there are those in the Bible that we'll plainly see uh, tonight just for a little bit who could not see afar off, who did not think afar off, who did not look afar off. They live for the present, for the now, for today. And it cost them dearly. It was a major, major fault and mistake in their lives. Come with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. I'm going to read from verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled with, together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when the, her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, or Harry. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, or one who grabs the heel, the heel grabber, or also the supplanter or the deceiver. And Isaac, and he was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And so she had to wait 20 years before she got pregnant. That's what that's telling us, and he was 60 by then. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He was the Bear Grylls of his day. He was the outdoor type, the sporty type, the playboy type. Now, this was a very wealthy, wealthy family. There was absolutely no need for him to be out other than sport to kill animals other than for sport. They didn't need it for food, although they ate it, but they actually didn't need it. But it was sport to him. And he spent his days in the field. 
seemed to be he was never around the house. He had to be outdoors. He had to be climbing or running or shooting or hunting with a bow and arrow or doing something like that. That was the type of man. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us something more about him. It says he was a profane man. He was a godless man, an irreligious man, and he was a fornicator. So he wasn't a very nice person at all. He's a bit of the Jack the Lad, a bit of a ladies' man. But Jacob was a mild man. It's not a very good word, that, actually. The literal word is complete, meaning mature, meaning an all-rounded type of person. And he was a godly man, unlike his brother. And unlike his brother, he liked to stay about the home, help out in the house, help out on the farm, help out with his mom, help with his dad. He wasn't out and about all over the place like the other fellow was. So these twins could not have been more different in personality and type and looks and every way they were completely, you know, spiritually they were just totally, totally different. Notice what it says, And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. If you read the history of Isaac, you'll find he was a, he was a very kind of a, uh, a kind of a soft kind of a guy. He wasn't a very manly man. Uh, and maybe what he saw in this particular son was everything perhaps he wished he had been, but wasn't. But whatever reason was, he favored him because he liked the game. And he liked the idea of this son of his being a real man's man. Uh, you know, a real sporty type, an outdoor type. But it says that Rebecca loved Jacob. There's always going to be trouble whenever there's favorites in the family, isn't there? And both these uh, loved these twins, not together, but separately. And it would cause problems, of course. It says now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name is called Edom, which means red. So his nickname was Big Harry Red. <laughs> How would you like a name like that? Big Harry Red. <laughs> it says, Make me some of that same red stew, for I am weary. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. No, he wasn't. He was just hungry. But he's a man whose belly came first. He's a man who lived for the moment, for right now. It didn't matter about tomorrow. It didn't matter about the birthright that would come down the generation. At some point, it had to be today. I want to eat right now. And of course, Jacob knew his nature. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now a couple things about this story. 
He despised his birthright. The birthright was the single most important thing in the family to be handed on to the next generation. And normally and usually, it was the eldest got the birthright. Now, God changed that several times. This is one of the occasions. But normally, it was the eldest got the birthright. And who got the birthright got a double portion. And it was a spiritual thing because when the father would die, you become the spiritual head of the whole clan. So big spiritual responsibility would be on your shoulder. You can see why God didn't want him to get it. You can see why God prophesied right at the very beginning <laughs> that the elder would serve the younger, that actually Jacob would get it. The natural course would be he wouldn't. It would be the older brother, but now it's the younger brother who's going to get it. And also, it would mean much more economically. You get the double portion of all of the goods. And it would mean much more socially, because you would be the head of the clan. And so there was all kinds of reasons why this was very, very important. But the most important reason was spiritually. You would be the spiritual head. You would be the one that they would look to. And we can see that Esau did not care a jot for that. All he wanted was that lentil soup that day, that moment right now. But Jacob, looking far into the distance, whenever it might be, he saw the birthright, knowing that he had been promised it, was trying to make sure he was going to get it, knowing that God had already spoken, because no doubt his mother kept telling him growing up, the birthright's going to come to you, not to him. It's going to come to you, not to him. So he knew this. And so he's saying, now you sell me the birthright, so when this comes up, you know that this day we made a pact, we made a deal, and I'm getting the birthright. And as far as Esau was concerned, well, that's fine by me. What good is it going to be, do me right now? I need something right now, not something away in the by and by. I need it now. So he's a man who couldn't see afar off, but Jacob could. We're not going to read this, but the time you turn to chapter 27... Uh, let me just read a little bit. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son, he answered, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow. Go out into the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now here he is, he is 138 years old in chapter 27. He's going to live another 42 years, but he doesn't know that. He thinks he's going to die, and he thinks he's going to die pretty soon. And his eyes is getting dim. So he said to his son, go out and get me some game, make me some of that savory food, because I don't know exactly when I'm going to die, but I feel it's pretty soon, and I want to bless you before I go. Now, you see, he got the prophetic word also. But in spite of getting that prophetic word, knowing full well who should have been getting the birthright blessing, he still was going to favor the older brother because he favored him and liked his game. Now, without reading the rest of the story, you know how then, and we can't condone what he did, but you know how Jacob 
and Rebecca, his mother, they got together, they concocted this idea how they would get the birthright of the old father. Now, it wasn't that he was greedy. It's just he lacked faith. If he had a trusted God, he would have got the birthright without doing anything because God promised it to him. But how many of us are like Jacob? We want to help God out. You know, he hasn't hurried up enough, so we better do something quick. <laughs> this, is, this is all going pear-shaped. We don't do something fast. And that was his feeling. This thing this has gone out of control because the mother heard what was going on. She said, Jacob, hey, listen, come on, we better do something here because the old fellow's going to bless him and you're going to miss it. And they panicked instead of trusting God. But think about this for a moment. From where we first read in chapter, what chapter did that we read first of all? Chapter what? 26. 20, yeah, from where we first read to when it actually happened, from when Jacob said, sell me your birthright until that moment when he deceived his father and got the birthright, if they were about, say, 28 years old, they were certainly well on the adulthood, right hunting and all the rest of it. Say they were about 28 years old when, that, when he made that pot of stew for his brother. At least 50 years we're talking about. 50 years had passed before he actually got the birthright. I'm making that point to say this because he could see afar off. He was looking away out into the future. Someday, sometime, somehow, I'm going to get that birthright. And all of those intervening years, he patiently waited for the moment. And then when the moment came, he lost his nerve and should have held on in faith and he caused all of that deception to go on that actually cost him big time. Because they had to leave. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying here are two brothers. One couldn't see afar off, only lived for today. One could see afar off and live for that moment in the future when he would get the birthright. Can we just see for today? Or can we see further than today? Can we see afar off and can we see the future, our future, as God intended, if we trust him, if we're prepared to be patient and wait, no matter how long it takes, if God has promised, if God has promised in his word, if he's promised through a scripture, if he's come to us and promised, are we prepared to wait and look afar and say, Lord, it doesn't matter if it's another 20 years I'm going to look for you to do that. Remember the prodigal son? See, here's another fellow who could not wait. Sure he couldn't. Give me my inheritance. Even though his father was alive, he didn't, wasn't prepared to wait until the old man died, which he should have done, would have been a decent thing to do. Give me it now. I want it today. I don't want to wait for it. I love you, but I'm not going to wait. I want it now. And the father gave it to him. And what did he do? He went out and he blew the lot. He couldn't see afar off. Had he awaited 
until he got it the right way, he'd have been a more mature man and he wouldn't have blown it. He'd have been blessed by it. Instead, it became a curse to him because he wouldn't see afar off and he wanted just today. Today was as far as he could see. He had enough of the father's house. He had enough of all the chores he had to do. Enough of the limitations of the father's house. He wanted out of there today. Give me my money. I'm off. So he gave me his money and he went off. Of course, he didn't come back the way he went. Sure, he didn't. Thank God he humbled himself in the end when he was in the pigsty. He humbled himself and he came back. And of course, it ends wonderfully well, doesn't it, for him. But it could have been so much better had he awaited. Had he awaited and seen it far off, then he would have had that whole inheritance and he wouldn't have blown it. What about, what about Lot? What about Genesis chapter 13? See, all these incidents are here to, to remind us of something and encourage us. Chapter 13 of Genesis. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there first. And there Abram called in the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram and had flocks and herds and tents, now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And in a brackets it says, Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord in the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they departed from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Now, Abraham gave the choice and the preference to Lot. And if Lot had any sense of decency in him, what he would have said to Abraham, Abraham, you're the senior man. You're the head of the clan. I will defer to you. You choose. But he didn't. He got his eyes on the well-watered plain of Jordan. And once he saw that and thought, I could have that. In fact, I can have that right now. All I have to do is say, well, you've given me the choice. I'll take the choice. I'll take that. And you can take the opposite. And that's exactly what he did. He looked at the well-watered plains of Jordan and he saw how beautiful it was. 
and how lush it was and how well he could live there with all of his animals and graze and have great flocks. And as soon as he saw that, he wanted it right there, right now, right then. And Abraham said, okay, you go that way, I'll go this way. And Abraham dwelt in Cana in the hell country. It wasn't as lush, wasn't as nice, wasn't as good a land, but he took it because he was trusting God. Because he remembered God's promise and he could see it far off. Now, had Lot been able to see it far off? There was five cities in the plain of Jordan. And two of them were Sodom and Gomorrah. And everybody knew what went on there. It was famous for it. They were very prosperous cities, but they were very wicked cities, the Bible says. But nonetheless, he chose that area. And it's interesting, is it not, that it says there in verse 12, he dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. He's not quite in it at this point but he pitches his tent towards it. Now the Bible calls Lot a righteous man who vexed his soul daily with what he saw in this city. But at the start he was living outside of it, he pitched his tent towards it. And he thought to himself, I can live between the best of both worlds. I can separate myself, but I can go in and out of the city when I please, and I can do commerce. And this is a picture of Christians who think they can live in the kingdom of God and live in the world at the same time. They want one foot in the church and one foot in the world. They want to go out on Saturday night and party and do everything the world does and they want to come to church on Sunday because they don't want to go to hell. But that's not going to work. That's not going to last. And it didn't last for this man. Because in chapter 14, the next chapter, verse 12, at the bottom of it says, They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So now he's dwelling in Sodom. He's not just pitched his tent towards it. In fact, he hasn't even got a tent now. He's done away with the tent. Now he's dwelling in this city. This city, by the way, which verse 13 says, of the previous chapter, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Knowing that, he decided at the start, I'll just keep outside of it, but I'll trade with them, but I'll keep outside. And then he discovered, hey, that's a prosperous city. I could do well in there. And so he started to dwell in the city. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, you can read that in your own time, it says that he sat at the gate of the city. That means he was one of the elders of the city. Because that's where the elders sat. When you say he sat at the gate, that's what that means. He was one of the big wigs of the city now. He's sitting at the gate of the city. He's a very successful businessman and he's trading and he's doing business to the point now he is one of the, he's one of the chiefs. He's one of the elders of the city. If only he had a looked afar off. If he only had a looked down the road and saw what was coming. This was an absolute disaster for this man. Because you remember as you read further on how that God sent those two angels 
to come and destroy the cities. And how they visited Lot and his home in the city. And the men of the city, says from the eldest to the youngest, they came and they began to batter on his door and says, give us these men that we may be intimate with them. Ah, he's in a fix now. Because the word's not going to change for him. He's the one who's compromised. They haven't changed. He's changed. He's in the city. He's living there. And now he's in a fix. You know what he does? He comes out, quickly closes the door. He maybe didn't want the two men to hear what he's about to say. And unbelievably, he says, listen, I've got two daughters who's never known a man. Do as you will to them. Can you believe that a father would do that with his own daughters? But they had no interest in those two ladies. They are only interested in the two men. And they began to batter on the door. And they said, hey, why are you judging us? You read that. Why are you judging us? Are we hearing this today? Why are you judging us? You know what happened? The two angels grabbed them and pulled them in and closed the door and struck them with blindness temporarily. And then they turned around and they said to him, listen, get your family and get out of here because God's going to destroy it. Who's in your family? Your sons-in-laws and your daughters. Your two single daughters, your two married daughters. He told his sons-in-laws, and you know what they laughed at him. They laughed at him. God wouldn't do that. It's nonsense. It's a joke. Cut yourself on. You're imagining things. The angel says, get out of here fast. And so he took those two daughters, the ones that he was going to offer to, he took those two daughters, and he took his wife and him, and they ran before the judgment of God came. And came it did. Hot and heavy, and destroyed the cities. I nearly don't want to tell you this bit, but had he has seen it far off, consequences were great. Do you know what? His two daughters, they end up running and hiding in a cave. And his two daughters must have thought this is the end of the world. God's going to destroy the whole world. There's only us left. What are we going to do? How are we going to populate? There's only us left. You know what they decided? They decided to get their daddy drunk and sleep with him. And both of them did that. And both of them got pregnant. And both of them had children. And one was called Moab. One was called Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites. They became Israel's bitterest enemies particularly the Moabites in future generations became Israel's most bitter enemies and it all started out of Lot's disastrous decision because he couldn't see afar off and he wouldn't trust God he got his eyes in the well water plains and he wanted it right now, today I can have it now and he got it but boy that was a bitter experience Hear what I'm saying tonight. Look beyond today 
Try to see God's future for your life and trust him for it. Yes, there's stuff we've got to do today. Yes, there's legitimate things we've got to do today. Yes, it's good to have dreams for today. Yes, it's good to have rewards today. It's good. All this, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, listen, there's going to be situations in your life where you'll have to make a choice. Either to go with this now or to trust God for your future. Be very careful what you do with that decision. We're almost finished. Paul said, 2 Timothy 4.11, he said these words, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. What an opportunity. Imagine being mentored by the Apostle Paul. Imagine the greatest apostle ever lived taking you personally under his wing and mentoring you and wanting to be your father in the faith. And you start out doing that and then for reasons best known to yourself you decide the world is offering me more than this. Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Couldn't see afar off. Couldn't see if Maybe he'd end up writing an epistle someday. Maybe he would have become a, a great spiritual giant in the faith. Maybe we'd have been talking about him tonight for other reasons other than this. But he couldn't see afar off. All he could see was the world around him right now. And he wanted a piece of it. He thought he was missing out on something. Many young Christian gives up the faith. They look at the world and they think they're missing out on something. Can't see afar off. Can't see the rewards that God's got in the future. Never mind the blessings he has in the present. See, this is why the scripture says that we're not to set our affections on the things of this world. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in him. Now what does that mean? What it doesn't mean is that we're not to bother with the, those who live in this world. In fact, we're to befriend them, we're to help them, we're to try to win them to Christ. Jesus was the friend of sinners, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Was not, he loved to be called the friend of sinners. But that's a different thing than becoming like them. When Jesus went into the company of sinners, not to become like them or to camouflage himself among them, but he came in as light in a dark place. He came in as salt in a corrupt place. He came in to win them. And so the Apostle John, several times in those little short epistles, he warns us again and again and again not to become like the world, not to live for the world. Try to see afar off. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're subject to change. But the things which are not seen, they are eternal. You've got to look at the things that you cannot see. So that means you've got to look farther than what's beyond us right now. What's around us. You've got to see beyond all of that. Let's see the great plan of God for our future. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to close here just in a second. Hebrews chapter 11. (coughs) 
Speaking of Moses in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He looked beyond his present. He was a prince in Egypt. He had a fortune. He was wealthy beyond our wildest imaginations. He had prestige. He had influence. He had affluence. He had all of that. And he left all of that to look ahead, knowing that he was going to suffer. But he left all of that because he could see afar off. He could see a reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And verses 8 to 10 of Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would not receive, that which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Lot wanted Sodom. <laughs> he got his eyes in that city and he ended up living in it. But Abraham, bless him, he was looking for a city that couldn't be seen, <laughs> that hadn't appeared yet, whose builder and maker is God. These are men of faith, aren't they? And in verse 22, it says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. <laughs> oh, he believed the promise of God and he knew that one day they would no longer be there. And he says, When you go, take my bones with you. <laughs> take my bones with you. He could see afar off. Hadn't happened yet, but boy, he could see afar off. I'll be dead, I'll be gone, my body will be turned to bust, dust, there'll only be, uh, only be bones left. Take my bones, don't even leave a bone of mine. Take them with you when you go. <laughs> he could see afar off. The final verse is 2 Timothy 4, 8. Listen to it. But godliness is profitable unto all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. We get the best of it, don't we? Having promise of the life that now is. God has blessings, he has rewards, he has all kinds of good things now for us. Yes, there's difficult times, yes, there's struggles in life. We heard much about that this morning. But God has also rewards and blessings right now, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Can you see afar off? What blessings, what promises, what rewards has God got for us? His crowns for us to wear if you can only see afar off. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful future that you have secured for us.
eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Lord, there is so much that we haven't seen or heard that's ahead of us. And we thank you for it. We bless you, Lord, for your provision of the future. We thank you, Lord, that even right now you're preparing a place for us. Glory to God. We thank you that eternity, it will take all of eternity to reveal all the blessings that are in store for us in the future. So we thank you, Lord. We look afar off and we see that by faith and we claim it in Jesus' name. We thank you for the blessings of today. So many things to be thankful for even right now that you've given to us and we bless you for them. So thank you for the life that now is and for the life which is to come. Lord, we have got the best of both worlds and we give you the honor and the glory from it. So Lord, if something comes up, Lord, it would cause us, Lord, to, to miss your purposes. Help us, Lord, to look beyond the present and see the future and trust you for it. Help us to put our lives into your hands and keep them there. Thank you, Lord, for your grip that's on us. Thank you, Lord, for your nail-scarred hands that surround us. We bless you for your goodness and your mercies. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.